the Devil's Party. I am Anthony Oliveira, PhD culture critic, dumpster raccoon, and this week we're dealing with some woes. Uh, specifically, uh, weird locust monsters. We are in uh, chapter 9 of the Book of Revelations, um, and the back half of the seven trumpets are now occurring. As I mentioned, we have a classic 4-3 split, um, where the first four kind of hung together, and the back three have their own kind of logic. All three suck. All three are kind of this infernal quality. Um, and this time we get the full opening of the bottomless pit and locust attacks and then a dude uh, named variously Abaddon or Apollyon um, who I thought was so complicated and interesting that I would have to split this woe from the other one or two. We'll see how it goes. Um... Okay, so, and the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from heaven to earth, and he, you'll notice the star is a he, was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened from the smoke from the shaft. Um, okay. <laughs> Before we get any further, let's talk about this star falling. Obviously, the idea of a star falling is, at this point, kind of rote. You've been listening to this podcast, some of you, for years. Um, we're very familiar with this imagery. It is very common imagery in uh, Jewish texts and then, in obviously, in subsequent Christian texts. Um, Babylon the Great, thou art fallen. And then we have the idea of Nebuchadnezzar falling from the sky, right? That's where the whole, like, Lucifer thing comes from. It's also quite common in first century Jewish texts. Um, I'm going to talk a lot probably, I think, about First Enoch this week. If you haven't read First Enoch, it's, it's really worth a look. Um, and it talks about the kind of fallen angels. There's a lot of personification of the stars. If you look in Job, um, when God has his great rant about hippopotamuses and stuff, he talks about, like, where were you when the morning stars were singing? So star equals angel is a pretty common equation, and it's very obvious here. Um, the star falls to earth, and then he is given a key. It's a personified entity. Now, what's a bit more tricky, what's a bit more complicated about this is uh, who is this angel of the bottomless pit? Um, and it is not as easy to parse as you might imagine. I saw it interpreted in radically different directions uh, in both ways. Um, in one, he is a servant of God still, a faithful servant, who is executing God's commands here uh, in unlocking the pit. And um, that, to me, actually does seem the clearest version, the clearest interpretation of who this angel is. I don't read him as being Abaddon or Apollyon. In fact, there's some interpretations of, for example, again, First Enoch, where um, the angel who's in charge of Tartarus is actually Uriel. Uh, that's his job, is guarding um, the pit. Now, what is the pit is kind of an interesting uh, question. This is the abyssos. Um, it, it comes up nine times in the New Testament, and all seven, seven of the nine are here in Revelations. Uh, the other time it comes up is when Jesus is casting out the demon legion, and he says, send us not back to the pit, 
to the abyssos. Um, the other time is a little bit not quite in keeping with the rest. It's in the Book of Romans. It's clearly the place of the dead in the Book of Romans. But this is clearly like the 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 place of some kind of demonic storage. Um, what is actually kind of tricky, and we're going to get to the demons here in a minute, is like, is this somehow different from the fallen angels themselves? And the reason this is tricky is because time itself is kind of tricky. When in human history is this happening? Is it at the end? If so, who are these demons? Because as many particularly evangelical readings, but a lot of Christian readings, um, point out, Satan is clearly active in the world. Satan is free. Uh, so why is the pit locked here? Um, an interesting question that we'll have more reason to parse as Revelations goes on. Um, but first we have to deal with the product of this pit. Um, then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given authority like the authority of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to damage the grass of the earth or any green growth or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. That is a weird sentence given what we saw about how like basically all the trees are dead <laughs> already. But the point is um, it depends where your emphasis is. And when you think about the emphasis, it's much clearer. The point is like they're not the kind of locusts that eat green things. They are the kind of locusts, a new kind of locust, that torments humans. Um, that is the distinction he is making. Um, they were allowed to, oh wait, I want to, oh yes, they, the seal of God on their foreheads we've, we've seen. That's a standard rote thing by now. We've seen that people are sealed. There was the whole like flag on the play, remember? He was like, wait a minute, we got to seal the faithful. <laughs> um, they were allowed to torture them for five months but not to kill them. And their torture was like the torture of a scorpion when it stings someone. Five months, um, pretty much exactly, actually, the lifespan of a, of a locust, May to September. Um, clearly, like, a time that is not quite short, but is defined, right? Um, and in those days, this line, so good, people will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. Uh, <laughs> what, what is going on <laughs> with these locusts is an impossible question. Some people talked about it being like a weird sensory overload in the comments. Some people said it's like the edible hi hitting here. Um, I'm going to read their description, which is truly one of the most wild Someone described it, one of the commenters, like a faithful Christian commenter, was like, the most horrific moment in all of the Bible. Um, which is kind of, I guess, true, except when you see artistic renderings of it, and you're like, wait a minute. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to give you this, like, extremely weird word picture, and then we'll break it down. In appearance, the locusts were like horses equipped for battle. So we're dealing with, like, it's big and armed, right? On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had scales like iron breastplates, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. 
They have tails like scorpions with stingers, and in their tails is their power to harm people for five months. They have as, oh wait, let's not even talk about the king yet. Okay, that's wild, right? Um, so bodies like horses, um, crowns of gold, faces like humans, hair like women's hair, presumably that means long, uh, and teeth like lion's teeth, scales like iron breastplates, and the noise of their thunder was like the rush of many chariots. Uh, what do we do with that? Well, as many of the commenters noted, it feels like, it feels at first like, okay, you've just like lost it, right? Like this is way too much. Um, I really enjoy actually the way it is performing this kind of horrific sensory overload. Um, I like the way it doesn't hang together in a way. Like it has this kind of, it's a chimera, right? Like it, it looks like a weird manticore thing. Um, and that to me is itself kind of delightfully monstrous. There is something, you could imagine fighting this thing in like Diablo, you know, like it has that kind of quality. Um, but as with a great deal in John's revelation, things kind of lock into place when you start digging into Jewish literature. Um, the first place that is probably obvious to you is uh, Exodus, right? The eighth plague is the plague of locusts. Um, and he is drawing the distinction between that plague of locusts. Unlike the Egyptians having all their food eaten, this thing is tormenting you in life. So that's one obvious intertext. We've seen John playing with, remixing, and intensifying the plagues of Egypt throughout. Um, but let me just point out the book of Joel to you here. Joel is a minor prophet. Um, in fact, the book of Joel is only referenced in the book of Joel. Like, it's not hooked into any larger um, references or anything. And it is also incredibly difficult to date. It's very vague about its uh, place in history. It does not mention any, like, notable rulers or anything um, or, like, events that are concretely interpretable. It's also very short. Um, it's only four chapters long. Um, and the main thing the book of Joel is about is a plague of locusts. I, I just want to read you, I'm going to be kind of selective about the first, I'm going to give you a taste of the first chapter and then give you a bit more of the second one, because as you will see, it is incredibly germane. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Uh, Hear this, ye old men, and give ear, all ye inhabitants of the land. A phrase you'll notice comes up in Revelations quite a lot. Has this been in your hath this been in your days, or even in the days of your fathers? Tell you your children of it, and let your children tell their children, and their children another generation. That which the palmer worm hath left hath the locust eaten, and that which the locust hath left hath the canker worm eaten, and that which the canker worm hath left hath the caterpillar eaten. Away, ye drunkards, and weep, and howl, you drinkers of wine, because of the new wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation is come up upon my land, strong and without number, whose teeth are the teeth of a lion." And he hath the cheek teeth of a great lion. He hath laid my vine waste and barked my fig tree. He hath made it clean bare and cast it away. The branches thereof are made white. Um, and then the rest of one is kind of taken up with how you should be um, lamenting. 
uh, is not the meat cut off for our eyes, yea, and join gladness from the gladness. The seed is rotten under their clods, the garners are, you know, things are bad. The locusts have eaten everything. Then we get the description of the locusts in chapter two. You may have, I pointed out their um, teeth like lions, right? That's the image that John uses. This is chapter two. Blow ye the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand, a day of darkness and of gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness, as the morning spread upon the mountains, a great people and a strong. There hath not ever been the like, neither shall be any more after it, even to the years of many generations, a fire devoureth before them, and behind them a flame burneth. The land is as the garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Yea, and nothing shall escape them. And here's a description of this locust army. The appearance of them is as the appearance of horses, and as horsemen so shall they run. Like the noise of chariots on the tops of mountains shall they leap, like the noise of a flame of fire that devoureth the stubble, and a strong people set in battle array. Before their face the people shall be much pained, all faces shall gather blackness, they shall run like a mighty man, they shall climb the wall like a men of war, and they shall march every one on his ways, and they shall not break their ranks, neither shall one thrust another, they shall walk every one in his path, and when they fall upon the sword, they shall not be wounded. They shall run to and fro in the city, they shall run upon the walls, they shall climb upon the houses, shall enter in the windows like a thief, the earth shall quake before them, the heavens shall trem tremble, the sun and moon shall be dark, and the stars shall withdraw their shining, and the Lord shall utter his voice before his army, for his camp is very great. Here's a phrase you will recognize from Revelations. For he is strong that executeth his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. And who can abide it? Um, was that about a locust army? Or was that about an army army? It's an interesting, weird variance, right? Something happens to the hyperbole of it. And you're left to question, is this a description of locusts that has gotten out of control or is, was it always about a foreign army uh, who is devouring the land under cover of this um, metaphor of locusts, right? It's an open question. Um, as you can see, the, the craziness of John kind of dissolves there when you compare it to this. Like, it's very clearly the source text for this weird locust imagery and a lot of the um, images, right? The image of uh, of the hoarseness, the image of the chariot sounds, uh, the image even of like the, the blackening skin, like it's tormenting people. And I should say, it came up in my reading, um, the weird way that uh, there's like a, an Arabic proverb about describing locusts that talks about them as a kind of chimerical and references horses. Actually, a lot of languages, for some reason I learned while researching for this, describe locusts using words for horse. Um, 
uh, in Italian, it's something like cataletta. I don't know if you speak Italian. Locust apparently means little horse. Um, similarly, in German, the word the German word for locust literally translates to hay horse, like a horse that's in your hay. Um, which is wild. Uh, I, I guess they do have kind of longish faces. Um, although I also saw a description that's like hair, like women's hair is a description of an antenna. So it might actually just be attempting to describe what a locust <laughs> looks like. Um, that's the kind of more uh, sublunary way of interpreting this, but there have been some bonkers ones. My favorite um, uh, crazy one is like, oh, this is about helicopters because it has the spinning hair, long hair, and the sound a helicopter makes is like a chariot, right? And has a long body and its face kind of looks like a human face, right? Um, pretty kooky, but uh, there's also some very fun contemporary ones like, um, is this, for example, about the Parthians, a very notable uh, cavalry army um, that is very germane to John's situation in Asia Minor because the Parthians are to the east of Rome. They're really the only major threat Rome actually has. Um, and it is interesting if you are, for example, a small Christian peasant in Asia Minor that the Romans sure are scared of the uh, the Parthians, but how much does a peasant have to be scared of the Parthians, right? Like, how much are they marked for salvation, whereas those with the mark of the beast are doomed. We haven't actually gotten to the mark of the beast, but you'll, you'll see. Um, this will be very germane as well next week when we start talking about literally the horsemen who come out of the Euphrates. Uh, on the flip side, another interpretation for this cavalry army is pretty much the exact opposite of the Parthians, the barbarian horde to the north who are also horsemen, who have long hair that is blonde, as though they might have a golden crown on their heads. Uh, if that is compelling to you, go with God. The last kind of ingenious interpretation of these figures I encountered while I was doing my reading for this um, was one that suggested these are a kind of infernal cherubim, that in the same way You'll remember that in Revelations, the four beasts that surround the throne are separate entities from each other. You know, like there's the ox one, the human one, um, the uh, eagle one, and the lion one. Uh, but in Ezekiel, they're kind of combo beings, right? The cherubim are all four of those at once, um, which is fun. And then like, you know, again, like, oh, mighty as a lion, you know, quick as an eagle, whatever, whatever. Uh, but it's fun to imagine like a demonic parody of that that is like lion and scorpion and horse and human, right? That's like fun <laughs> and also seems to have wings. They can clearly fly, um, which is quite a feat if they are horse-sized. Their size is actually not clear here, if you notice. Like, are they locust-sized? Are they little? Or are they like the size of a horse with a huge-ass scorpion tail? Um they're torturing people, uh, and if you're describing something with a human face, it gets kind of silly if it's small. So I think we're supposed to imagine, like, a terrifying demon monster. Um, but if you are more delighted by the idea that they are tiny little horses, little My Little Ponies, uh, you should definitely ride that wave. Uh <laughs> 
<laughs> the last thing we have to talk about is definitely my favorite thing in this week's reading, um, which is their king. They have uh, as a king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. Is that the same angel? It feels like if you were going to call somebody the angel of the bottomless pit, it kind of feels like it's the guy who has the key, but I don't think that's the case. And it is worth noting that uh, the abyss is what Enoch says is literally the prison for the fallen angels. Anyway, they have a king over them, an angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. Um, the next line is so good, uh, although it's rendered very poorly in this version. The f first woe has passed. There are still two woes to come. A better version is like, the first woe is done, but I see two more rising. Like it has a kind of present tenseness um, that is very spooky. What's with this uh, angel of the fallen, of the bottomless pit? I It doesn't feel to me like it's the angel who unlocks the pit. I think that's a different angel. I think that is a proper servant of God, and this is clearly some kind of diabolical, demoniac entity here. Um, but I also don't... It doesn't feel like it's Satan, right? Like, if it was Satan, you would say it's Satan. So there's what one scholar described a novel demonology happening here. Um, if you're imagining an army then you're going to imagine a captain to that army. And it doesn't feel like Satan's going to have this five-month expiring army, right? So this is like its own little version. What do we do with this figure? Well, he's an angel. He's a fallen angel, whatever that might mean. Um, and that will become a question we have to keep wrestling with in Revelations. It's very clear that John ascribes to something very similar to Enoch, something which is very common in first century Jewish thinking, which is like particularly this kind of esoteric mysticism, which is that something happened in the heavenly court um, that led to a, a, a concerted fall, possibly a war, uh, and a fall of many of God's servants who are now on the earth or in this case, in a prison house, or were on the earth. In the example of the Book of the Watchers, they were on the earth until Noah's flood, and then they were put into a prison house. Um, why they fell, the nature of their fall, for example, in the Book of the Watchers, they were having sex with human women, which led to the giants, all that stuff, the Nephilim. Um, that will emerge... Uh, we'll get some picture of it in this text, and then the subsequent picture of it that Christianity really, like, bolted with uh, <laughs> is is basically, its primary source is this text. There's a real reason that this is, you're, what you're looking at right now is the fork in the road, is the moment um, that first century Judaism that went along the rabbinic path um, kind of left Satan in basically the version we encounter in Job, where he seems to be a member of God's heavenly court, um, but not something you think of as this kind of metaphysical grand adversary, versus what he clearly is in this text and in all subsequent uh, Christian, most subsequent Christian literature, which is like this kind of almost Manichaean adversary who is a real and present foe, sometimes to God, but certainly to us. 
Um, I don't think, though, that's what Abaddon slash Apollyon is here. The, one of the clues to that is he has to give you it in two languages, which is very clearly a sign that he is aware that he is making up a new thing, introducing a new concept. If you have to define something and explain its name like this, that means that's a clue. That's a literary clue that this is a new idea. Um, what do we make of the name? Well, Abaddon is, as he says here, Hebrew. Um, it just means destroyer, destruction. Um, and then we have Apollyon. It is a very hard to hear the name Apollyon, which does indeed mean destroyer, and not think of Apollo. In fact, uh, Greek uh, art, Greek literature, very often uses this kind of echo effect to talk about Apollo. Um, you are probably very used to depictions of Apollo, as I am, as kind of the poetry guy, beautiful twink, uh, loves loves a good song, but in like a beautiful way, not like in a Dionysiac way. Um, gentle, has a lyre, etc. Apollo has a very distinct other version of himself. Um, for example, Marcius, the the uh, the satyr who challenges him to a music off and loses, and Apollo skins him alive. Uh, there's a painting I really love where Apollo has his foot on Marcius's chest and he's kind of this beautiful, terrible twink skinning alive this hairy man. Uh, it's great. It's horny and terrifying and gross. Um, Apollo is the destroyer. He is, in fact, in Greek myth, the god of plagues. He can bring healing, but his arrows can also bring plague. Um, and this kind of great little resonance in his name was very available to Greek authors. Um, it has a double uh, echo here if you know that Domitian, who we've talked about a lot, was particularly devoted to Apollo, the emperor in Rome, who was very big on his own deification and with an asterisk here about like how much we can rely on these sources, seems to have presided over some measure of Christian persecution, loved Apollo. So this might be a dig. Um, I talked about how these locusts could be the Parthians, could be the barbarians, but the very easy and obvious thing they could be is a Roman cavalry, right? Um, they're armed beasts uh, invading. And it is hard if you are... For example, John of Patmos, not to think of an armed beast invading and think of Rome. Um, Abaddon and Apollyon, this is where I'll end, uh, has, because he is a named demon, has a very, very rich afterlife in Christian mythology of various apocryphal or canonical sources. Uh, his biggest hit by far, I think, has to be his presence in Pilgrim's Progress, uh, which outsold the Bible for several centuries. Uh, he encounters Apollyon in, I think he's in a bog, I don't even remember, but they fight. Um, and that kind of really gave a boost to Apollyon. For example, Joe March in Little Women uses Apollyon to talk about her temper. <laughs> um, if you think about uh, the way this is very specifically about a prison, Right, a sort of inescapable pit which has a key. 
I regret to bring up her name, but J.K. Rowling uses this when she creates the name Azkaban, which is a combination, apparently, of Alcatraz and, I guess, a really tortured pronunciation of Abadan. So (laughs) make of that what you will. One I like much more is that in the first draft of the script of Return of the Jedi, Uh, which was much less about repeating the beats of the first movie. Uh, Instead of defeating the Emperor on a second Death Star, Luke was actually supposed to travel to the planet that was the capital of the galaxy and deep into its pits, where he would encounter the evil Emperor Palpatine. And when you think about it, instead of being called Coruscant, which has this sort of light, bright... um, Uh, I mean, coruscation, right? That's why it's called that. Uh, Instead, this kind of dark capital where he would meet the demon in the pit was called Had Abaddon was going to be the capital of the galaxy, which is so cool. Um, Abaddon comes up in Torchwood. It is one of the names for that demon in that great Doctor Who episode, two-parter where he meets Satan. If you haven't watched that one, by the way, go check it out. It's basically doom. I love it. Um, and there's a Matthew Abaddon on Lost, apparently. I'm not a Lost guy, whatever. Um, anyway, he's also, like, mentioned many times on Supernatural, which really exhausts every demonic name it can get its hands on. Uh, a fun little demonic mystery to play with. Um, okay, that is it for me on... Sorry about that streetcar squeal you just heard. Um, that's it for me on this. I'm going to turn over and do the reader comments on the Patreon, which are super cool and interesting. If you're not uh, subscribed to that, go check it out. Uh, even if you don't listen, you could just support me by joining the Patreon. Uh, this week, uh, if you're listening to this in the first few days or in the days after, uh, it drops uh, my new comic, Captain Marvel... Assault on Eden is coming out, and you should pick that up in your local comic book shop. Uh, As you can imagine from the title, it may have a few biblical resonances in it. (laughs) I cannot help but have characters speak in quotes from Paradise Lost whenever I write, uh, so watch for those. Uh, And of course, Dayspring is now available for pre-order, so it helps out amazingly if you pre-order a copy of my book coming out Easter 2024, which uh, was really built on the back of this podcast. Like, um, I think listeners to this show are going to be like, oh, I remember literally the week he learned that thing that's in this book. Um, Okay, Uh, thank you so much. Uh, Be brave enough to be kind. Bye-bye.